Welcome to our podcast, Bad, It's All About Crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir. And each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad, All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Bad All About Crime podcast, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. My name is Andy Muir, and joining me later in the episode to talk about today's books are Suzanne Leal, Dr. Sue Turnbull, and Catherine Dupoulou Menager. But enough about us. Today's book's been described as a pitch perfect thrill ride, your new obsession, and a killer that is one of the most disturbing in the genre. Amy Suda Clark launched into the crime writing world this year with a striking debut, Girl Eleven. Set in America's Minnesota, it's the story of El Castillo, a podcaster exploring the series of cold cases involving the disappearances and ritual killings of several children 20 years ago. The suspect was dubbed TCK, the countdown killer, who for no reason suddenly stopped. Halfway through the new season of her podcast, El gets a tip-off from a listener, but before she can meet, the listener's dead, and El suspects TCK's back. Amy, did I give too much away? No, I don't think so. I think that's mostly what you could get from the back of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's quite hard doing these things because, you know, crime and thrillers, they're all about, you know, the twists and you don't really want to kind of go too deep into those because you're giving too much away. But um, but but the blurbs that you have, they're really impressive. Do you, if you ever have any sort of rightly doubts, those blurbs are going to be an absolute tonic, aren't they? Oh, they, they did help with the nerves a little bit. I mean, some of my absolute favorite authors read and recommended the book, which was huge for me as a writer. Like, it was really, really lovely. Yeah, I, and I noticed there's one from S.A. Cosby, the um, Blacktop Wasteland author. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I'm a huge fan of. So, yeah, it's um, no, it was, it was really quite striking to kind of see all those different people recommending your book. So it's it's um, it's great. So out of those authors, uh, are they people that have influenced your own work or are they people that you admire? You know, who, who are some of the other people that you, you think of? Yeah, probably Candace Fox, probably more than any of the other ones, is the one that I've read the most books by her. And I just love her style of writing. It's not my style of writing, so it's hard to say that she – influenced my writing but it was more that she made me love crime and thriller novels and so even though we write quite different characters and obviously most of her books up until her most one of the most recent ones is set in LA but the rest were set in Australia Um, and obviously I live in Australia but my books are set in the U.S. so there's that difference as well but yeah she was hugely influential on my decision to write crime novels. Yeah, she's pretty um, – and she's very generous as well as an author. She's incredibly generous, yeah. So as um, as you said, your novel's set in, in Minnesota and my only connection with that city is through the TV show Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> so what was your reasoning for setting you, your novel there? Well, I grew up in Minnesota and I grew up in a small town about three hours west of Minneapolis, but I went to university. I did my undergraduate in St. Paul, which – Minneapolis and St. Paul are known as the Twin Cities or just the cities uh, to Minnesotans. And that's where the book is set, is in that metropolitan area. And I really loved living there. I, I've, you know, 
people who've read my biography will see that I've lived in London for a couple of years and I've lived now in Melbourne for about seven years. So I've lived in a few different places, but Minneapolis was a really influential city on me. And that's where I really became a young adult um, going there for my undergraduate degree. So I think that was a big part of the influence. And I knew that setting and that culture really well. So I felt comfortable and able to write a book that was not just set there, but that felt like it needed to be set there. Yeah, right. So, I mean, you know, as you said, you did an undergraduate in theatre and you lived in the UK, you're now in Melbourne. I mean, where in all of those experiences did the main character of El Castillo spring from? Uh, it's always hard to pinpoint that I, my main characters and most of my characters are not based on any one person or one experience. So probably all of those things have had an impact on developing her character. She's not me. Like I know a lot of debut authors particularly write, you know, it's a great way to write yourself into a, a story is to write a character who's quite like you. She has aspects of my personality and my chronic anxiety, but she also has experienced a lot of trauma, which I haven't thankfully. And She's also very impulsive and very, you know, go out and get the story type of a person. And I'm quite content to sit at home and cuddle with my dogs. So mm. <laughs> she's very different from me in that respect. But I think she's also influenced by a lot of the people that I've met living in different cities, different places, different cultures. The way, obviously, women are different in different places and different environments is really interesting. So I think she's an amalgam of many of the different people that I've met in those scenarios. Mm. Do you think, um, you know, studying theatre and drama sort of influenced your your, your style and your, your, the way you pace your, your work? Absolutely. I think it really influenced the way I build characters. The way I studied acting was the Stanislavski method, the method acting. Mm. And the most important question that we were continually was continually drilled into us was not what would I do if I was this character, but what would I do if I was this character in these circumstances? And I think that that really helps when I'm sitting and trying to write what's next in a story. I often think about, you know, what would I do if I was this character in these circumstances? Because it's not about what I would do as a person because yeah. that's not very interesting usually. <laughs> At least for me, I'm an introvert and I like, as I said, I like to stay home. So uh, putting myself in the character's shoes, in that character's circumstance with what has happened to them, what happens next in this story. And often, you know, as a thriller writer, you want to write like, what's the worst possible thing that could happen to them now? You know, because we do quite like to drag our characters through the mud and make terrible things happen to them. And readers enjoy reading that for some reason. It's very, very masochistic. <laughs> That's right. Blessed be the readers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Elle's a podcaster. You don't have a podcast, do you? I do actually. Oh, you do? It's yeah. It's only monthly and and has been lax for the last couple of months with the book releases and everything. Yeah. But I do have another episode coming up. It focuses on crime writers and people who like crime and what kind of goes into that and um, what what goes into being a crime writer. Mm -hmm. so it's called Scared Litless. If anyone's interested in that sort of thing, put a little link in the in our notes. For you as well, but um, so you you listen to a lot of the true crime podcasts and 
that, that Elle's doing? I do. I don't listen to as many anymore. I've gotten really into more talk format type mm-hmm. of podcasts, particularly there's this one called You're Wrong About, where I've just been binging their entire back catalog where they just debunk famous myths and, you know, things that pop culture events that we remember wrong um, now when we look back on them. And I love that sort of thing because I love learning new stuff. But I have a whole list of true crime podcasts that really impacted my style in developing Justice Delayed, which is the podcast that's inside Girl 11. And yeah, I still go back to those occasionally. My favorites, I, I enjoy listening to true crime investigative podcasts. Yeah, because it's an interesting um, point of distinction with with Elle's podcast is that you've put a her, her podcast is already successful. I think it's like three or four mm-hmm. seasons in, so she's already kind of well versed in this in this crime, um, and she's got this following already. I mean, what was some of the thinking be- behind that? You know, as opposed to starting at the episode one. I really wanted the countdown killer to be kind of a progression of where she was before the book started. I think sometimes novels, particularly debut novels, tend to start with the character just as a blank slate, almost like nothing has happened to them. And she is really in this movement of this upward projection of her career. You know, she's just come off of a really successful season that got her a lot of new listeners. The thing about podcasts is like there's millions of them now. So it used to be really easy to get cut through, but now it's really difficult. So I didn't want to go through all the time of setting up like why she becomes successful. I wanted that to already be the case that she was a successful, you know, self-made podcast host that was just really had a knack for investigations and that people respected her. Cause that really comes into play in the book as well, that she needs to have a reputation as someone who gets things done. Otherwise it's, it's already (laughs) rare and almost unrealistic for a private citizen to be brought in on an active investigation. Although we see that all the time in TV shows. Um, and so I like to think that I have a little bit of creative license if Hollywood does, but um, I wanted her to have a reputation to fall back on and experience working for, for the police when she was a career professional as a social worker as well. Yeah, yeah. And also I suppose it's uh, the audience has got to already trust her so that they can give her tips and tidbits and that conversation that, that happens around podcasts. That's right. And I wanted, I wanted it to be frustrating for the reader as well as for her when people don't believe her because she she kind of has this feeling that so so many women I think have of like, I've proven that I've been right before. I've already shown you that I know what I'm doing and I'm not an, you know, emotional female, quote unquote, that I I know what I'm doing and I've got this investigation and my hunches mean something. When a man has a hunch, we believe him because that's a gut feeling and that's important. But when a woman has it, it's just, you know, well, she's just letting her emotions get away with her again. Yeah, that's right. Sherlock Holmes has a lot to answer for. Yes, he really does. (laughs) So do you remember where the the first ideas for this book came from? The first idea was actually about the serial killer, um, which is interesting because I try so hard to get away from focusing on the killer in that story. I feel like Elle's struggle with that kind of mirrors my own as an author. She struggles to focus on the victims in her podcast and I struggle not to get 
swept up in developing this killer in the story. Um, so the first idea I had for Girl 11 was what if there was a serial killer whose victims were each a year younger than the last? And I kind of went from there and developed a story around it, which was interesting in a way because it let me develop a main character who would be the perfect foil for him. Mm-hmm. And instead of developing it the other way around of who would be the perfect antagonist for this person. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting because um, you just answered my next question, which was going to be, you know, mm-hmm. characters or the crime that come first. But um, mm. Yeah, the character in this case, at least, um, why he does his crimes, how he did his crimes, those things changed through different drafts. But the char- the pattern was always there. Yeah. TCK, the, the, the killer, he, the crime you've, you've concocted is so intricate. Like he has such a complex sort of methodology that, um, you know, I was going to ask sort of how long does it sort of take you to, to come up with this? It's sort of, I'd, I'd almost be too afraid to go that deep <laughs> with a killer. It really developed over time. I think I, I wrote this book in multiple drafts over about two years. So, and the original idea I actually had two years before I really started drafting it. So I think that was also kind of working away in my subconscious. Um, I wanted them to be intricate because I wanted to, I think there's a lot of movies and podcasts and books about, you know, killers that have this really regimented pattern and, and it all has a reason and a purpose and they're a genius, you know, they're the Hannibal Lecter. They're the person that you no one can stop because they're just too smart. And really what it turns out, this is not really a spoiler, but the countdown killer, like he just got lucky. Like he just had, he happened to be killing at a time where, you know, forensic investigation wasn't to the point that it is in 2021 when L picks this case back up or 2020. And, you know, all of the things, the tricks that worked for him in his past don't work for him now because society changed so much over that 20 years that he was dormant. And I think that we've come as a society to think that killers who have this really, you know, this big pattern and this unique set of circumstances under which they kill are somehow an elevated form of person. They're, they're so clever and they're so smart and it's really just, that they got good at the one thing that they did and the one thing that they did was really terrible. Yeah. That's an interesting point about, you know, society's changing because Elle is a podcaster. I mean, she's an amateur sleuth and, you know, 20 years ago she'd be sort of the concerned citizen. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of, do you think that 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 role of the investigator is changing through sort of contemporary crime fiction? I think so. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, the big thing in crime fiction was the private investigator, the person who had formal training usually, but they got, they were disenchanted with the police force. So they left and started their own investigation. And I love those stories. And, you know, those stories, uh, Myron Bolotar, Harlan Coben's private investigator character is one of, one of the reasons I fell in love with thrillers. I, I love that character. Uh, So I certainly have nothing negative to say about that, but really that person is also an amateur sleuth in the, in that they're not a police investigator and they don't have any other special set of skills other than this license from the government that says that they're allowed to investigate crimes Um, because you can become a private investigator without being a police officer first. So I think that we've come 
we we really respect paperwork and bureaucracy and we kind of look down on people who just get really obsessed with something but that's what that's what journalists do and that's what makes a lot of journalists really really good at what they do i just finished watching actually yesterday zodiac which is based on robert graysmith's book who was a cartoonist working for the san francisco chronicle who became obsessed with the zodiac killer and he had no training he was just good at puzzles and he was really obsessed and investigating this case mm. and you know sold an incredibly successful book and had a movie made made about his book and about his life and and all of that and again i i don't want to keep coming back to it being a woman but i think that having l be a woman makes a difference in how she's treated not just by peep characters in the book but how she's treated by readers as well i know there've been some reviews about it's so unrealistic that this amateur sleuth would be allowed to investigate this case and that you know people would ever take her seriously and it's just like that happens all the time mm. like that actually it does happen a lot that <laughs> amateur investigators and police rely on the community to um, help them solve crimes and that's been the case all along so even 20 years ago or you know whatever distance of time you want to go back police have always relied on people in the community to snitch on each other or to tell each other, tell the police what happened. And I think that that continues to this day. Like Elle's got a really good relationship with the police throughout the mm. whole novel, doesn't she? She does, even though she's had, you know, obviously negative experiences with them <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, which I, I didn't want to glorify the police through this book. Like, and obviously a lot of stuff has happened with Minneapolis police since I wrote this book that was not in the international media the way that it is now. Um, but even so, I wanted I wanted her relationship with the police not to just be rosy because that's not realistic either that that everyone would just respect her opinion. Because, mm. I mean, that's also with the police in the book that there's, you know, Sam Hyde, um, they have a bit of a, a bumpy relationship uh, he sort of starts out as sort of seems to be an antagonist and then becomes, you know, quite the supporter. Um, mm. you know, so, you know, that's sort of shifting. Are, are you much of a planner in your plotting or are you more of the uh, the pantser as, the, as the, the phrase goes? I've become more of a planner. Things still occur to me while I'm writing that I didn't plan for, which always feels a little bit like magic. Yeah. <laughs> and... I, I like to leave space for that to happen, um, even when I've put together a synopsis and a and an outline of where I want to go. Um, but I think what happened with Girl Eleven, trying to think back to the early early drafts of this, I really did start just with that idea, and I started writing, and then I kind of looked at what I had and outlined it from there. Kind of outlined the key beats that had just kind of naturally been put into the book as a you know, when you read enough books, you sort of know the flow of a story without even trying to put it in there. It's almost a um, professional pitfall, isn't it? That when we kind of, <laughs> we read so much, that we kind of see the things that, um, you know, we can see the bones poking through. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially with thrillers, you can kind of go, oh, that person's going to die. Yeah. I, like two thirds of the way through there, the halfway point or something like that. <laughs> Which is it was kind of a like Elle's coroner husband. How do you pronounce his name? Martin. Martin. Okay, because yeah, I was only sort of halfway through the book. I realised that there was that little 
I'm not sure what the symbol is. Accented Accent. I. Yeah. 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 Suzanne, one of our other co-hosts, listened to your book in German and um, it's there's a different pronunciation of the name there. So we're kind of going, I'm not sure which one's right. <laughs> but um, Elle and her husband, they have a really quite a, a supportive relationship, which again is is unusual in crime fiction. <laughs> Sadly, yes. <Yeah>. <laughs> Was that always intentional? I mean, how, how big a role did, did you sort of see Martin as playing in the, in the book? Because he sort of starts out as a coroner. He knows a little bit about the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted him. He was a medical examiner from the beginning. And I think I had just finished reading Working Stiff uh, by Dr. Judy Melanick, who's a, she actually lives in New Zealand now, um, but she's an American uh, forensic pathologist. And I was obsessed with her memoir about being a medical examiner. So I think that was probably the influence on making him a medical examiner. But I really, I did really write that relationship intentionally the way that it is. And in fact, I had to introduce some conflict because a couple people, including my husband, read it and was like, he's just too perfect. Like he's, he never challenges her on anything. And that's just not how relationships are. <laughs> that was true. And like talking to Bones, you know, poking through, I was going, this guy's too clean. He's too good. There's something going on here. Some, yeah, a few people have said they really expected it to come out that he was like the killer or working with the killer or something like that, which yeah. always made me feel a little bit like, oh, Martine. <laughs> That's um, the sequel. But I really just wanted her to have a safe place to land at home. Like I wanted that to not be part of the conflict because I feel it so often is especially in that sort of psychological domestic thriller space, the the marriage relationship is a key part of the conflict and the tension in the book. Mm. And there was just enough, in my opinion, enough conflict and tension without them having a, you know, marriage that was on the rocks or something like that. So I, I really wanted their relationship to be supportive and for him to be there for her and someone she could kind of bounce ideas off of because she doesn't have a lot of friends and um, her one close friend, they become estranged through the book. So I didn't want her to just be by herself trying to deal with everything that was happening. A traumatized person going through really significant trauma on their own was just not the story that I wanted to write. Yeah. It's, it's true because the really the only other um, friend that she has, if you'd call it that, is her her podcast producer. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't really sort of socialize with anybody. She's all about the crime. Yeah, she's all about all about investigation and her podcast. And yeah, so like you said, even her other good friend is part of the podcast. Like they became friends through that space. So that's the majority of their conversation is around that. Yeah. So by the end of the novel, like Elle's changed her sort of worldview um do you kind of think that you know she'll return to podcasting or is do you think that would be you know the end of of her sort of investigations (laughs) i have thought about this um for undisclosed reasons um (laughs) but i do think that she would she would continue her podcast if the right case came to her and it might be a case of it actually coming to her not her going out looking for something to investigate because i really do see that um her progression in the book is as realizing that she has drifted away from a standard that she had already set for herself and i think that people do that all the time we we all think that we're better people than we are (laughs) 
and that we have higher standards than we really do. Yeah. And often it takes a really big wake up call, like what happens to her in this story for you to realize that you've let your standards slip. Mm. And so like, what about you? Like in the process of writing this novel, like, you know, how have you been changed by this, by this process? And, and you know, what, what did you learn? That's a really good question. I don't think I've been asked that before. Um, we always I, try to find one. <laughs> yeah, one. There were all good questions, just to be clear. <laughs> um, yeah, so I feel like I've changed a lot as a person just in the time that it took because it was about four years, like I said, from the initial idea to when the book was written and, and published. So I've changed a lot in that time for sure. And But in terms of the book itself, I think realizing that what I was just saying about like letting standards go, I think has really kind of become a, a more important thing for me of going, you know, what what is your worldview? What are the things that you really believe about people and, you know, what we owe to each other as society and human rights and all of those things? And how are you actually doing anything to make those things better? And so I think that's a big thing for me is that just kind of that challenge to myself of making sure that I'm actually backing up the things that I say I believe in with action. And are you working on a new a new book at the moment? Are we got more down the, coming down the line that we can eagerly put our orders in with our <laughs> booksellers? Uh, yes, I'm working. I'm actually doing a very significant rewrite of my second book because I didn't get it quite right with the first draft, which happens, yeah, unfortunately. That's, that's the and process. it seems to be part of my process. It was with this book. And I just had a Facebook memory come up from 2015 saying I had just started a redraft from a blank page of a story <laughs> that hadn't worked. So it just seems to be part of my process that I write it once and it doesn't work. So I, I start all over. Um, so I'm working on my second book now and it's a different, different world, different characters and story, but still set in Minnesota, uh, just in a small fictional town. So it goes from that metropolitan sort of storyline to a much more small uh, claustrophobic community. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm look forward to seeing it on the shelves. Thank you. Um, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> it means it would have been written. <laughs> I know it's such a, a vulnerable position being a writer, isn't it? We're sort of <laughs> putting our stuff out there yeah. all the time. Yes. But um, thank you very much for the for the, the, your time today. Um, Girl at 11, I really loved it. I thought it was a great page turner. I think Elle's a fantastic character and, you know, it's a really interesting, if snowy, world in Minnesota. <laughs> um, so, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. thank you so much. I'm really grateful for how well it's doing in Australia, especially considering that it's such a different setting and environment from what anyone here would be used to. Yeah, but it is why we read, isn't it? We kind of want to see mm. different worlds and different experiences. It's true. Thank you. All right, team. So we've uh, we've just heard Amy talk about her book, Girl 11. What sort of reader would we be recommending this to? Mm, it's an interesting question. I think someone who needs an absolutely compelling stay up all night kind of book, somebody who's distracted or worried needs this book because they need something else to worry about. <laughs> and once you start reading this book, this is my definition of a thriller. You cannot stop reading because too many people are in peril 
and um, the countdown killer is at work and the countdown is happening. So you have to keep going until the end. Yeah. <laughs> and you hope that it'll end happily. Well, it's not happily. You hope there'll yeah, be a satisfactory I was about to, resolution. I was, about, I was about to give away a, a yeah. you know a plot no, no. point, and then, this, then I went. This book is very hard to talk about because there's so many twists in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know that does make it very compelling, and it is very um, pacey page turner. And Absolutely. I actually love the way I, I actually like books that do things that give you. A script or a diary or um, a, a transcript. And um, I remember Minette Walters once talking about the fact that she wanted to write a crime novel that would only be documents, oh. that you would actually oh, have to piece yeah. it all together from the interview, the court mm. document, the this, the that, yeah. the other. There'd be no controlling third person so voice. I, as a kid, I remember my grandparents had, I think it was Dennis Desmond Bagley, maybe, but it was. It was actually a crime file, and you kind of open it, it was photographs and transcripts, oh, okay. and you know little bags of hair. And <laughs> can I beg to differ? Can I say, um, as a lawyer, and particularly as someone who's a tribunal member, that's my job. <laughs> my job is to get a whole lot of stuff and, and make a part, decision and, and and work it out. So I'd much prefer to read a book yeah. where the work is done. Yeah, but as a lawyer, the work is not done for you. If you if it's put together as a book in terms of that kind of evidence, the 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 key for you then is to uncover the story that has been very carefully presented in that way. Whereas you're just reading um, a horrible jumble of documents that you've got to make sense of. Whereas in that kind of storied way, um, the author would have made the decision about the line that fo- you follow through. I suspect the prosecutor or uh, might um, disagree and it's a horrible <laughs> bundle of documents just put together. So I, Ooh, I yeah, might stand up for the, for the uh, profession. <laughs> the defence rests. But I wonder also if um, that, uh, there's something about the podcaster voice because there's a few podcasty books, or books with podcasters, and mm. and the fact that it's a, you get you have a different voice automatically because it's a recorded voice, it's a mm. it's a formal voice, it's a lawyer's mm. type voice. I mean, it, it's not a it's not a writing voice mm. automatically if it's mm. a podcast. It's mm. a performance, yeah, straight away. Uh, thank you. And I better. suppose if you've got a narrative that is linear, then by having the podcast transcript interposed. It, gives it an interest and look I found I found this book compelling I did find that it dragged a little towards the middle and I was a little bit sick of Elle by that stage and I thought is there much more that Elle's got to give and then I don't think I'm giving anything away it switches to another voice Mm. which is a quite compelling voice so I thought just as I was think beginning to flag it got picked up again again. which is a a skill Mm. yes I think that's right yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah, that twist is quite um, Time very right. well handled. Um, and it, it sort of – I felt a bit the same way about Elle. I found her quite sort of dispassionate in a way at the mm. beginning and sort of like going, why is this person so fascinated by this crime when she's but sort of – then we discover really. there's a reason. Yeah. 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 It reminded me actually of a – I can't think of what, but of it's the snow and the, the, the setting yeah. was very – Something by Michael Robotham that happens in the snow, but in England. I can't think what it is. But it's quite, um, it's very nasty. Yes. I mean, it's a nasty bloke, this bloke. But then, and again, we have talked before about perpetrators. He's a perpetrator with a background and who made him what he was. But it's interesting, though, the whole kind of notion of the podcast as a form 
of investigation. And um, I, the, the first one that I read that did that was the Benjamin Stevenson mm. Green Light. Green Light. Yeah. And, and what I particularly loved about that book was that, as you remember, the, the central character who is the podcaster mm. um, has presented this podcast, which has proved the innocence of a man who is already in prison uh-huh. serving a sentence for murder. And he's, produ- he's produced evidence that gets the man out. And what he does is actually cover over the evidence that would prove that the man was guilty. And so this man is out. And then there's another murder done in exactly the same style. And you have the podcaster's guilt that they have actually as a consequence of embroiling themselves in the investigation, Mm. they've caused another problem. And I think this is what's really interesting to me about the True Crime podcast is can it can it do that? Is is it in fact? And I've I've you know come across, and Suzanne, you probably know this too. I've come across quite a few lawyers who are actually quite worried about true crime podcasts because they explore a case, they present evidence, they yeah. interview people that are inadmissible in court, and they end up producing something that may have an impact way beyond their wildest imaginings. And as I understand it, there are no rules for podcasters. So whereas um, there are rules for the way a police investigation takes place, there are rules in how lawyers speak about a case or how judges talk about a case. Seems to me it's a bit like early days of Uber. It's just um, (laughs) gone rogue. So it's um, do what you like, say what you like. And it can't be – for me, one of the um, comparisons is when there are deaths – by suicide, there seems to be, and I, I, don't, I don't know what the details are, journalistic rules that you don't set out how someone died by suicide. How they kill themselves, yeah. Um, in order not to mm. encourage other Copycats. suicides. Yeah. Mm. And from what you're say, saying, Sue, it's the same sort of thing. I mm. mean, if we're going to have in-depth investigation with all this material out there available at random, mm. are we encouraging copycats? But there have also been some, recently some, either television or, or radio podcasts or investigations into cases that have that are very controversial because they tended to take one side and say, nobody's looked at this. Well, probably somebody did look at it actually mm. in court and perhaps that wasn't admissible because it's not been proven and your mm. burden of proof is very different from the burden of proof of the court. Mm. But do podcasters have fewer... I mean, what what restrictions do journalists have if you're a journalist and you publish something about a case well there is a there is in fact a whole set of kind of ethical principles that underpin journalism but um, not that not podcast but in podcasters are not uh, are not always journalists Mm. in in that sense that they they may be somebody who you know just wants to set up a podcast like we've done you know yeah. we didn't have to ask anybody or follow any rules or or anything like that we've we've started this we started our, our book club and um you know we've only got our own ethical and moral standards uh, standards <laughs> principles on which to rely really. but we wouldn't defame someone because there's a there's a legal I mean we are aware of the legal background I just wonder I don't know because I don't really listen to a lot of true crime podcasts mm. Um, I wonder how careful the producers have to be about what you can and can't say. Well, in in her book, in Amy Suter Clark's book, there is a moment when she actually pulls back the, within the podcast. She says, "I can't do this for one reason or another." Mm. So that there's a moment in the book when there is an acknowledgement that there might be a limit to what can actually be said mm. in a podcast. Right. 
Yeah, which is but which it's, is but it's true. interesting because really the true crime podcast is is in many ways an evolution of the true crime n- n- book. You know, the true yeah. crime investigation. And I remember in the UK um, a number of years ago, I was interviewing a man who had written a true crime book about a particular murder case um, in Cardiff. And he had gone down to Cardiff, he'd met the families of the men who had been charged with this particular murder. I think it was of a prostitute in the Tiger Bay area in Cardiff. He'd met the family and he'd proceeded with his investigation and he had indeed discovered a massive miscarriage of justice. And then he was completely embroiled with this family in the case, getting these men out of prison. And when I talked to him about how how he must feel, you know, terribly proud of what he said. He said he just felt exhausted and he he had bitten off so much more than he had wanted to mm. chew mm. and he'd become involved in these people's lives and he had a responsibility to them and it all gotten completely out of hand. And so there was that danger when you set out in a vigilante cause to kind of mm. investigate something that's never been investigated before and you actually find yourself... Probably well, a bit very what happens water. in here, actually. Yeah. I mean, we, I, I won't give away any spoilers, but yep. there, it something does does potentially go wrong. Yeah, because of the because of the involvement. And what I think is in all the the podcast novels, if that's the right way of calling them, the novels which feature podcasts and podcasters, it's a the, the podcast the podcaster becomes embroiled in the. Yeah, in the murder or in the in the plot in the cr- sorry in the crime mm. I should yeah. say. So it's a really a bit like journalists, isn't it? The journalist yeah. narrator. Yes. Um, so you know, we we're talking about Chris Hammer earlier. Um, well, yeah. the private detective too. I mean, yeah. in the sense that the private detective, you know, from from um, Hamilton Chandler onwards, becomes involved with the family, and you know, but at least he's he's got a job. Somebody's taken him on to do this. I mean, I suppose the journalists have been taken on to, in, you know, like their papers say, yeah. go and investigate why. But they've got to be emotionally invested. Yeah. If they're not emotionally invested, then, then it it's just a job and, yeah. well, why are we going to read this story? Mm. But so it's interesting that we like, the, the, the you know, the it, we like the investigator becoming the story. Yeah. Because that's, that's what happens. Well, I think we need the investigator to become the story, don't we? Because otherwise there's no skin in the game for the investigator. Yeah. We've simply got someone who is ena- enabling another story to take place. Mm. And I think also you n- sometimes it's just too much, too much crime. One after the other is and, – and so you need a break. And often it's the backstory that gives the break or mm. gives the breather. Well, you need a point of view and you also need a moral centre – and often the investigator yeah. is the moral centre. Or as mm. well, the journalist, stroke investigator, stroke podcaster. Yes. Mm. Narrator. Stroke yeah. whoever. Yeah. 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 I, was, I was also wondering, like when I was reading this, you know, because we, we're sort of seeing more of these kind of amateur sleuth, sort of citizen journalists, um, concerned citizens in, in crime fiction now, whether it's something to do with our view of police, like whether police are no longer heroic. We no longer see them as... as um, worthy of respect in some ways. Uh, there could be another reason, Andy. Mm. <laughs> Which we might get some argy-bargy. That, well, it's, it's not so much argy-bargy as just, how about this? If you're going to actually do it with police, you've got to know police procedure. Unless, of course, you're Peter Temple and you make that, it up. And you make it up <laughs> as you go along. But if you if you are going to work with the police, you've got to have insider knowledge. You've got to have somebody that will, will tell you. Which is why I think domestic noir has been such a kind of growth area because all you need to understand domestic noir is to live in a family. Yeah. 
You know, you don't <laughs> have to do any real mm. research. You don't have to know what that form is or what that process is. What's or, likely to have happened. Or what's yeah. likely to have happened. So, in fact, for crime writers, moving outside the police force has been a massive bonus. I also think, too, you've got to reckon with the internet. So it's it's a question of gatekeepers. I mean, previously, the police were the gatekeepers of information. They were the only ones who had mm. the information. Mm. It's the same like uh, it's the same with publishing, I suppose. Previously, uh, yeah, houses were the only yourself. ones who could publish. You couldn't do it yourself. The internet means that you can be anyone, do anything, find anything. So... There's no longer – you don't have to suspend disbelief by having the citizen investigator yeah. because mm. they could well find stuff because everything's out there. And it's interesting. I'm reading a Michael Connolly book and I can't remember what it's called. But it's set about 25 years ago, 20 years ago in L.A. And it's so clunky because they can't find out the most basic thing. It's just would be Google. On Google. <laughs> and no, they have to go and go – you know, I'll ask a friend who used to work here. And I'm thinking – so it is. That's actually a really good point that we can all be our own investigators. I mean, to some degree, our own investigators. But uh, thinking back to the police, I did, did, were the police ever trustworthy? Well, Dixon of Doc Green, <laughs> even <laughs> and all. Remember that? Yes. Oh yes, I've, I've written quite a lot about Dixon oh, of Doc you? Green. Oh, yes, right, I okay. have. I have. And was he was he reliable? <laughs> Uh, well, yes. He was he, comforting. He was completely and utterly comforting if you lived in the south of England around London. I was living in the north of England and right. Dixon didn't stretch that far. Our house was broken into twice. I just, coming from overseas, found the whole Dixon Doc Green thing completely bizarre. But police kind of, the, the corrupt police were already present in, in film. You know, the, that whole kind of ambivalence about who the police I were and figures of authority. But I think it's to do with figures of authority as well. Mm. I, I think it's the wrong question. I don't think the question is, are they trustworthy? It's, are they still the experts? And they don't yeah. need to be the experts anymore. Point. Yeah, that we, to some degree, we can be our own experts. Or if it's about getting information, actually, we can be better than them. I mean, it depends what kind of information you need. But Because? Well, because we've got as many, we've got very good, you know, normal people have got very good resources, especially if you're an in, a, a journalist or an investigator, and you're not hampered by the rules that the police, one would like to hope, have some, they are hampered to some degree in what they can do. Mm. In theory. I, I suppose that's also one of the strengths of Elle in Girl 11 is she is making those sort of left field leaps, which mm. the police are sort of unable to do because of the way they've been trained and the way they, yeah. they view the world. So, yeah, I suppose there's something in that. I also like the fact that it was a female commander in a hijab. Yes. Mm. Which mm. was just neatly kind of slotted in there and I thought, oh, yeah. wow. Where, where did okay. she come from? Yeah, where did comment. she come from? Like that. Now, I've just worked out, I remember the name of that Michael Connolly book, it's The Black Echo. Oh, that was about his first. I thought the first was The Poet. No, 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 no. I think you'd find the poet was quite... It was the first book. The poet was right. his breakthrough. Oh, okay. Prior to that, I think the Black Echo was his first crime well, novel. Well, certainly, uh, it's certainly interesting with Bosch. But yeah. even the poet has got a journalist, a journalist. Yep. Mm. who becomes involved, who goes to report on something and then notices a similarity with something that's happened yes. to him. And then he's got skin in the game because his brother was killed in this way. And so yeah. this couldn't be coincidence. So he gets completely yeah. hooked by it. But Megan Golden's... Um, as another podcaster, female mm. podcaster, who becomes involved in the crime and solves it. Mm. Um, and it's a good book, actually. Uh, mm. I, I, I similarly really like set it. in America. I'm talking really about like The stuff. Night Swim. Yeah. And it, similarly, it's set in America. Yes. And it's a third book, and I actually think it's her best. 
Mm-hmm. Um, all her th- three books, even though Megan lives in Melbourne, yeah. um, she's had a kind of international career, a little bit like Amy in the sense that, you know, has, has lived or moved around. And I, 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 I'm intrigued by the fact that these are, you know, two Australian writers, in inverted commas, who've set their books in the US. And I understand yeah. why Amy would have done it, because that's where she grew up. So as she yeah. said, she feels she knows that setting. But I also, of course, begin to wonder about that, um, the American setting, as, is that the way you go to get the bigger audience, which, of course, is what Candace Fox has now done in her last two mm, books, yeah. apart from the ones that she did with James Patterson. So are we, are we still restricted by the Australian setting? Is that still a limitation for Australian writers breaking through? Well, it wasn't for Jane Harper. And it wasn't for Peter Temple, but it, it took a, quite a while for, mm. to come for the broken short. And, you know, you know um, I always get, you know, stumble on this, you know, the rural noir, the rural noir yeah. that country noir, that's what sells overseas. Yeah. You don't see a lot of, you know, urban crime. Australian, this is Australian going, unless it's to Germany. It'd be interesting which to see whether everything. Chris Hammer's third book, Trust, Truth, trust. Sorry, trust. Whether it'll sell as much overseas as I mean, presumably he's been quite successful overseas. It'd be interesting to see what happens. What happens to that? I can imagine it selling very well because of, it's about Sydney. Yeah, so and it's, it's got, got a map of Sydney thing. in, yeah. and any book that's got a map in immediately makes me want to go there and <laughs> walk the map. I've had that experience with crime novels in the past. Yeah, crime trips. And interestingly, both Girl Eleven and The Night Swim are about women being. I mean that female victims of different kinds of crime but but female you know definitely about female victims and there's a new one that i've read which won't be out till september which is sarah bailey's new book which also has a journalist and a podcaster in it and again they get involved they become part of the story you know in a really interesting way and again it's about women so we've now got mm. a new subgenre of yeah, crime yeah. fiction, the podcast. Yeah. Well, I've got three here. You know, there'll be more. There'll be more. But I mean, there's a whole journalist sub. I mean, the, I think maybe there's the journalist as an yes. investigator, yeah. and then the podcaster and investigator as a subcategory of the journalist. Absolutely. Remembering, of course, that Michael Connolly was a journalist and has talked eloquently about the fact that um you know being a journalist working those papers in in florida he was in florida and then in los angeles and all those links to all those detectives that he Mm. worked with and the courts that he worked with have been absolutely essential for him getting his facts right you know getting his 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 police procedure as precise as could be I've not read many American police procedurals. I'm quite used to the British ones, but it's quite it's interesting to to see how they the, the links between in this case the, the one I'm reading the FBI and and the Los Angeles police. Hmm. On a bit of a tangent, did you know that when in Australia you ring nine one one, you're automatically connected to Triple O? I had heard that. It's because there is so much. Um, Interest people, yeah. in uh, crime and American-based crime. So we're watching it on TV. We're reading it, so and of course, everyone knows yeah. what's the emergency number. It's nine one one. And I read it in a book, and I can't remember which book it was. And I thought I'm going to try it out. <laughs> so I tried it out. No. I, re- I, t- I read nine one one. A prank call, and I hung up before anyone <laughs> yeah, before answered. Anybody. But it did. So isn't that interesting? I wonder if it's the same for nine nine nine. Because having I don't know about you, having lived in the UK, I, if something if I had to call urgently, I would probably dial nine 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 because it's it's you know like it's just ingrained in my mind. Mm. Do you want me to try? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and if you th- 
think about it, it was really silly in the old days because you'd have to go yeah. all yeah. the way yeah. around it's a circular dial, dial oh. to get Gee, to the nine. I've never thought of that. It should have been one one one. Oh oh oh. oh. No, that was oh oh oh. oh would have been the other end. Around. It would Sorry, have to yeah, be one one one. There's a plot to do it fast. It would have been. There's so much, but that's. I mean, that's one of the things I know. I've said this before. I love about crime fiction that it's so tight. It's so. It's so society based, you know. Like, yeah, mm. you think about that. I, that's a great. That somebody must have written about that. You know, the the victim goes nine, mm. <laughs> <laughs> nine, or, and then the, and then they're murdered. Because and if it had been one yeah. one one, they would have got through. Yes, <laughs> exactly. there's some sort of civil action in that, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Whoever thought nine 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 was good. Well, I think we might have to leave it there with our <laughs> numbers. Um, We've had a very interesting chat about Girl 11 and a few other books there that will all be listed on our webpage uh, for you to look up and order and have a conversation about when you read them yourself. And remember, if you'd like to be a part of the Bad Sydney crime-loving community, then subscribe to our podcast, join Bad Sydney Book Club page on Facebook and visit our website to keep up to date with all of our news. We'd love you to be a part of the conversation about all things crime. For more details, check out our website, www.badsydney.com and subscribe to find out what's happening next. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back in a month with a new episode of Bad All About Crime featuring a new book and a new crime author. We look forward to your company then. In the spirit of reconciliation, Bad All About Crime acknowledges the traditional custodians of country through Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About Crime book club. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime.